2 Samuel chapter 19. I had a student one time when I was a youth pastor that was on stage presenting after you come back from youth camp, you know, and everybody gets up and starts talking and he was talking about Bible books that had impacted him and he said, you know, I really, you know, I like Romans and I like Philippians and I really love 3 Corinthians and he sort of kept going and sooner or later realized what he said and kind of felt bad about it and he said, I know I said 3 Corinthians before but I kept hoping Paul would write another one and so, uh, you know, just make a joke about it and keep on going. 2 Samuel chapter 19, uh, you know, you might remember, if we've got the first slide there, Rich, tonight of a, of a picture here, Old Testament looking picture, let's see if we got it, there we are. You might remember last week, we've, we've been walking through in this series, sort of paralleling what we'll get to in just a moment with our, our title, Is It a Wonderful Life? At the same time, we've been coupling that with the story of David. And David particularly, not only we began at, uh, you know, the battlefield with Goliath, but then we came to last week a story about David's own son, Absalom, who had uh, rebelled against him and turned the people's hearts against David. And David flees on foot out of the city. And it is about as you know, depressing as you can get that he's leaving the city. And there's this man named Shimei that comes to David. Shimei is descended from King Saul, and he takes this as the opportunity to say, I, my family has won, and David, you have lost. And he comes to David, and he essentially calls him every name in the book, and he says, you're a man of blood, and God is exacting revenge on you, and you finally got what you deserve. And David has some guys around him that say, look, King, I'd love nothing better than to chop this guy's head off. And, uh, and David says, no, we'll, we'll let God deal with him. David leaves the city, and we sort of dwelt on that last week with dealing with coming from ambition from David to then despair, and we look tonight at a, at a, a pattern of, of restoration or a picture of restoration, uh, which we'll get to in just a moment, but David had um, fled from uh, Absalom, and he had, he had had to leave, and, and Absalom was somebody who, it, by the way, if you want a really great biblical series to get to listen to, the best one I've ever gotten a chance to hear on these passages of Scripture, because we, these, you know, Second Samuel, particularly the later chapters, are so uh, dark and at times violent and difficult that we don't often, you know, go through those chapters, you know, as quickly as maybe some others or as regularly as some others. Uh, Alistair Begg um, did the best series I've ever heard on these chapters of Scripture. If you'd like to listen to more about David and Absalom, I certainly would recommend that. Uh, he's got an app called Truth for Life that has got all of his you know, teaching. You can watch it or listen to it, or you can go on the website, or I'm sure other, you know, the teachers that you uh, enjoy have probably got uh, teaching on that as well. But I would just say to you, if you've got time on your hand and you're wanting good preaching to get to listen to, uh, I would just commend Alistair Begg's series on First and Second Samuel to you. It's, it's really wonderful. But Absalom is somebody who turned the hearts of the people against his father. And all the difficulty that he's had in his family is now boiling over. And David's failure is coming back uh, literally in a way that's, that Absalom is seeking the end of not only his kingdom, but his life. It, you see Absalom described in the Bible. We're told that David was a really good-looking guy. But we're also told that Absalom was a really, really good-looking guy says that he had flowing locks of hair and curls that you could weigh on a scale, you know. I have never had hair you could weigh on a scale. Amen. It has been, yeah, so we're, it is retreating by the day. And so, uh, 
So, so Absalom was this good-looking guy. You sort of picture him being big and muscular. It was interesting. A few years back, I saw that, you know, the wonders of technology and artificial intelligence, you know, we've, we've had negative and positive with some of that. But what's interesting is that they've actually been able to, through, I think, some genetic things and scientifically, to sort of go back and try to reconstruct what they believe Absalom looked like, you know, with this flowing hair and just rippling muscles. So I wanted to show you the graphic tonight that uh, they, they came up with. I don't know, yeah. That's a... Uh, I might just think... Artificial, artificial intelligence is just something else. I mean, it's just great what they've been able to do scientifically. You know, I know, I know some of it's not as good, but man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Y'all aren't going to hear anything else I say tonight, are you? So yeah. Y'all know, if I'm not here Sunday, y'all know what I, I, I failed in. So yeah, but, uh, but we come to a series asking the question, is it a wonderful life? Can it be? You know, we come through the story. If you've seen the movie or not, it doesn't particularly matter too much. We'll look a little bit at that tonight. This is really not about a movie, but it's about really something that resonates with us that we see, you know, art or, or any, anything that's out in the world, sometimes it has this hint of truth that resonates back from a deeper, you know, pull inside of us. And I think the movie, the reason this movie's resonated for so long is because of that. I'd like to look at King David, but uh, tonight particularly, as we, uh, we talk about going from despair to then restoration, uh, the process that takes place in the story of George Bailey is, as many of you know, that he comes to a place last week, he was in despair, he was in a great need, he was even questioning whether it would be better for him to just throw away his life. And in the movie, he comes in contact with an angel that's come to show him what life would have been like if he had never existed. And so I've got a quick clip to show you this evening uh, that just shows what it was like as he's walking through a, a world that he doesn't understand and he, can't, he just can't understand how he's impacted so many and he wants to come to a neighborhood that his business helped to establish for those who otherwise wouldn't have been able to buy a home and as he comes to that neighborhood uh, it is only tombstones and so as he and the angel Clarence are walking through that uh, we pick that up there. Sure, this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? We weren't here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? What if we got a window into seeing what, our, what the world would be like without us having ever been in it? For any of us, we can walk through times where we think, you know, I don't know that my life really matters. Have I done any good? Would so-and-so be better off if I just never entered into the picture? Or would it be better this way or that way? And, and I think Satan has a way of speaking into our heart and life to say you don't matter. Perhaps... King David walked through some level of that as he reached a point in his kingdom where the boy who had battled Goliath, 
was now the man who was retreating broken out of a city on foot while his son took the kingdom from him and it seemed only a small amount of people wanted him to even remain alive. What that must have been like for him. Now many of you know the story and for the time we have tonight as we try to sort of hop, skip, and jump into a bit of the narrative in these four chapters of 2 Samuel. Let me sum up just a bit for you here. As David has retreated out of the the city, there are some things that take place where ultimately a battle begins to be fought, and Absalom, with all of this flowing hair, finds himself going a little bit too close to a tree on horseback, and as he goes underneath, he is caught by that hair, and he is unable to get away. It's then that the, uh, the soldiers find him and end his life, And as we come to a passage today, uh, we come to the point where Israel has won the battle and King David, I guess I should say, and his armies have won the battle, and yet that's at the loss of his own son. Have you ever been between a rock and a hard place? You ever been in a situation where it seemed like either way this breaks, it's going to be really tough? And so King David has lost his son and yet gained the kingdom And the feeling he has is not a feeling of success. It is a feeling of loss and grief. We pick up the narrative in 2 Samuel 19. I'm going to begin with verse 1. You can just read along with me. Joab is a special assistant to the king militarily and otherwise, and so that is who is communing with David. David has entered into a time of mourning, and as the armies are coming back victorious, they feel the need to sort of sneak into the city because there are no celebrations going on. It is simply mourning uh, for Absalom. Chapter 19, verse 1, it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to find your truth, your wisdom, your hope, your peace, your love in our passages this evening? Uh, Would you help um, the things to remain in our hearts that are worthwhile and true and that are from you? And so, Lord, we just look to you tonight and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Where do people go when it seems they are between a rock and a hard place and they are unsure where, how to rejoice in a situation that is very tough? David was weeping for the loss of his son. I think he must have inevitably been weeping also for the difficulty in his family, the brokenness that was in his home, his own failure as a father, his own failure as a king, his own failure in so many ways. And so David, as he's walking through that and as Absalom's life is ended, even though that means the war has been won, he's lost his son. You see times in the scripture where people are called to not spend very long grieving. You might remember the story that is in Leviticus. I think it's the only narrative story that's in the book of Leviticus where Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, offer strange fire to the Lord. 
and the Lord consumes them with fire in a moment. And Aaron doesn't know what to do with himself because what would any of us do if all of a sudden two of our sons were gone in a moment? And Moses tells Aaron, your time for grieving is not right now. You know, you're going to have to hold it together. And so Joab comes to David to say much the same thing. In one sense, we can understand why you're so upset. But you need to realize there are people and there are mothers and there are wives and there are children who will not get their family members back today because they have died in order that your kingdom can be preserved. And so in the midst of your grief, if you're not careful, you're going to alienate all those who have sacrificed and loved and done what they could. Have you ever been in a situation where it was clear you had to move past something in order to be able to still hold on to what God's blessings in your life still were? We can spend a long time focused on things that we can't change. And we can do that at the expense of those we love and, and of our future circumstances and otherwise. Despair has that hold on us to where we look inward and all we can see is ourselves. It's others who help to bring us out of that. You know, I've, I've sort of bold titled the heading for this section tonight called The Impact of Others. The first bullet point that's there is this. Others help us to see the truth. There are times that other people help us to see the truth, and we can't see the same vantage point. I like, um, you know, uh, old World War II airplanes. I brought one of those in here last week. I've, um, you know, I have no experience flying a true World War II airplane. I've done it in a few video games through the years, but not a real experience. But when you're flying in one of those planes, all you can see is out of the front of the window and maybe a little bit out of the top. So what do you need? You need a wingman or two who are going to be able to see what you can't see. Because your vantage point is only so far. David only had so much vantage point because this problem was so close to him. But it's others in our life that help us to see the truth that sometimes we can't see. And that's what's so dangerous when we begin to alienate ourselves from everybody else. All of a sudden, what the Lord has designed to bring us truth in difficult situations, if we're not willing to listen to anybody else, if we're not willing to be present about anybody else. Remember what Paul said in the New Testament, he who separates himself seeks his own lust. There's a way that we want our own way, even if it's wrong, and the more we pull away from people, the more we'll go down that path. Because nobody's there to say, mm -mm -mm, yeah, I don't think you see what I see. There are others who help us to see the truth. Now, you might in here know that there might be some others you don't want to hear the truth from because it might not totally be truth. It's just they're so glad to shoot straight with anybody that's around them. You know, they're, they're just ready to go. I'm not talking about that. But for those that God's placed in our life, there's a way in which God has given us other people in order to help us see the truth. The, the second bullet point that's sort of under that, sometimes even when you're justified, and David was justified to grieve for his son, sometimes even when we're justified, we have to zoom out. We have to zoom out because our focus level is often small and it often begins with us. You know the phrase we've got in English is people who think the world revolves around them. You ever known anybody like that? If you don't know anybody like that, it's probably you. And so, uh, yeah, somebody, family member, friend, whoever, it's kind of like it, it always starts outward from themselves. And all of us can be prey to that. We've got to zoom out at times and be able to see more than what we just see in that moment. David was experiencing the loss of his own personal vantage point, the, the heaviness that he carried from whatever failure, shame, uh, you know, and, and just difficult circumstances he'd walk through. 
And he had to be able to hear the voice of someone else to say, this is bigger than just you. This is bigger than just what you're experiencing. This is bigger than just what you believe to be reality that somehow presses in and comes out directly from you. And it's, that's not the true vantage point. We've got to be willing to zoom out. We face things that are difficult. Sometimes we have to pull back and see. Sometimes get the, the input of others to be able to uh, gain a window into a fuller truth than we would have just on our own. Others help us to zoom out. And so David is told this by Joab. And then the city begins to move forward and to finally be able to, to celebrate in the right kind of way. It's not you know, as joyous as it would be, but they move in the right direction. And then all of a sudden, uh, God brings somebody back into the vantage point of King David. I want you to look at chapter 19 and to go down to verse 16. You're going to see a character that we uh, just saw last week. 2 Samuel 19, 16, And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned, therefore behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, uh, Zariah, said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? There's always people in the people of God who are ready to exact any vengeance that you want to take. They're ready. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? That you should this day be an adver as an adversary to me, shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. You want to talk about somebody who was having a bad day in Israel. Shimei was having a bad day when he realized that King David was now marching victorious back into the city. He had really been real arrogant to come out and to throw stones and to say whatever cruel thing he could to the reigning king of Israel, though he was fleeing. And as he comes back in, Shimei realizes he was wrong. You know, it's interesting, as you, uh, one, one of the things I do sometimes to find graphics is to go on Google and just put in, let's say for instance like this, Shimei, David, Bible, and just see what pictures come up. You know, how many there are, because people who do curriculums and there's paintings and all that kind of stuff, it's all on there. I found it interesting that of all of them that I could find, probably somewhere in the 50 range, there were about 50 pictures or so, some of them sort of somewhat duplicates, of Shimei throwing stones or saying angry words to David. I think I found two of Shimei asking for forgiveness. And that sounds a lot like us, don't we? We remember the offenses that someone does way more than we remember perhaps their chance to, to ask for forgiveness or their, uh, their moving towards repentance. I think the best one I found was uh, this one here. It's just a little cartoony one for kids. I didn't even find a single one that was made for adults. Adult, adults don't even want to learn that Shimei had to ask for forgiveness and, uh, and then was given that. But imagine what it was like for him. Imagine what it was like for David. Uh, the third bullet point that I've got there for you, those who have experienced mercy give mercy. Why is it that David coming back into the city is not ready 
to end Shimei's life in the same way that he seemed so eager to end Goliath's life. Now, there may be some adjustments in character, maybe some mellowing over time. I'm not saying he was wrong in the story with Goliath, but I think there was some way that he began to process things a bit differently by the time we make it to this passage. And somebody who's had to experience a lot of mercy now is far more ready to extend mercy to others. And when we are not willing to extend mercy to others, that shines a light in our own heart to show either we haven't experienced mercy or we haven't remembered that we have experienced mercy. Remember the story that Jesus told about the man who owed somebody else, uh, owed a king an, an unpayable amount of dollars, you know, $50 billion, you know, if we wanted to translate it to just something ridiculous. And the king forgave him. And the man was so relieved, he went out, found a guy that owed him 20 bucks and strangled him to death and threw him in jail, giving that 20 bucks back. And that's, he says that's what people are like if they don't understand the kingdom of heaven, if they, don't, if they haven't received the forgiveness and understood the grace of God. If we're not careful, we can be that way. Those who have received mercy and experienced mercy give mercy. Shimei uh, is forgiven. He's told by the king, you shall not die. And then we find another character. Now, we didn't really look at this, but you might have heard the story. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the story of Mephibosheth in the Bible. Y'all know that story? Yeah, you can put your hands down. It's one of the funnest Hebrew names to say, Mephibosheth. And uh, a young man who was from the house of Saul, he had, been, he had been crippled in his feet, being carried out by his nurse at a time where the battle had gone south for Saul and his family. She fled in fear, and it seems that the text is saying she fell with him in her arms and crippled him for life uh, in that fall. And so not only has Mephibosheth been at, in fear towards King David because he was of the house that conquered his family's house, but he knows the reason I can't walk is because David won a battle, essentially, or, or ultimately the kingdom went from David to Saul. It's more complex than just that, but, but there's a way in which David would have been aligned with whatever hard thing was in his life. But you see this really wonderful story about David asking if there was anybody in the house of Saul that he could show kindness to. He finds out about Mephibosheth. He brings him in, and he has him sit at the king's table, and he makes him a part of the family. It's a really wonderful story. Right before what we read last week, and David was fleeing town, we see a man named Ziba who comes up to uh, David, and he says, you know, hey, I'm out here ready to go. And he says, well, what happened to Mephibosheth? And Ziba says, well, you know, Mephibosheth, when he heard you were fleeing town, he said, well, now is the time that I'm going to get the kingdom back, and it's going to come back to my family, and good riddance, David. And, uh, and David was crushed at hearing that. And they began to leave town. Well, all of a sudden, when David comes back, Mephibosheth comes out to meet him. This is what we read in 1924. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He'd neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Some of you in here say, my husband hadn't either. Uh, verse 25, when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant, deceive me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? 
David is told one story by Ziba. He is told another story by Mephibosheth when he comes back in. And the Bible never tells us where the truth is exactly at between these two men. Now, we're sort of left to maybe believe Mephibosheth a bit more because his account is given last. You might have a strong opinion on that. You're welcome to have whatever opinion you like. But ultimately, the Bible doesn't say this is actually what happened. We're left to see, and I tend to lean towards Mephibosheth's account a little bit more. But I find it interesting and perhaps sympathetic by the words of Scripture that, you know, in our lives, there's going to be times we don't ever find out the full truth in situations that hurt us either. There's going to be times we don't know exactly where the line is. Um, The fourth blank I've got here, we might never know the full truth, but the relationships matter more. We might never know the full truth. Now, there's times where we can't help but chase the truth, but there's other times where we're just not going to get to exactly what what happened, what was misunderstood, what was done in anger, what was done in confusion, what was done out of a lack of ability in their mind to cope with this or that. You know, we walk through things that are, uh, most of the hurts that we would carry are complex in some way. You know, sometimes the people who have hurt us have been hurt by other people, or sometimes the difficult things that we walk through, they're the fourth or fifth stop on somebody else's difficult path. So it's just rarely do we get a sense to say, here is exactly the truth. But you know what? Relationships matter more. What what matters is that Mephibosheth has come out of the palace, and the story that he gives clearly indicates that he wants to love and to serve David and to be with him. And David doesn't probably have a good reason to completely disbelieve what he says. The the point that is underneath it is that, you know, sometimes restored relationships are even stronger than the untested ones. Restored relationships sometimes are even stronger than the untested ones. When you've been through deep water with somebody, when you've been through a situation that was tough and you both realize how hard it would be without being in in good relationship with one another, you get through that and you get back to the side where you're on good terms. Sometimes you're even more thankful for that person right then than you were even at the start. And so sometimes God uses a testing in a relationship or even builds a relationship uh, through that. And so relationships that are restored can be even stronger. All of us are wired differently in here, but for some of us in here, we might really struggle to say, you know what, as soon as somebody hurts me, I'm done with them. And the door's closed, and the wall goes up, and that's it. You know, you may have walked through situations in your life that have been difficult, and and perhaps in some cases, that is what has to be the case. There are times that things just, there's no other choice but that. But for some of us in here, you might be wired in such a way that working through conflict or difficulty, you're just more prone to just walk away from the relationship. And I would encourage each of us to just take heart at the, the, take, take an ear to what the Lord says through his word, just how many relationships you see mended and worked through in the scripture, and that sometimes we're called into a place where there's a bit of complexity in our willingness to forgive, and at times those can be the greatest blessing in our relationships. Now, what you would like to see is David go off into the sunset here in the Bible, and they all lived happily ever after, but that's not what happens. And it's usually not what happens in our life either. We'd love to write a story of our life that sort of we reached a certain age, you know, uh, maybe it was 25. Wouldn't that be great? 25, you just sail off into the sunset and your problems are done and you just coast for the rest of life. You know, maybe it's 55, 60, 65, 70. 
Uh, some of you can, in here, you'd say, well, I'll attest it's not 70, 75, or 80. And, uh, you know, there's, there's just always things to still work towards. As you continue reading the book of 2 Samuel, you will see that right after David's kingdom is restored, it gets plunged right back into difficulty. He's not sailing off into the sunset. But he knows more now than he knew on the other side or the previous side of what took place. Now, if you're just looking at your Bible, we're not going to read all of this. But if you look, perhaps your Bible has headings. If you look at the rest of chapter 19, you come to chapter 20, you might see a heading that says something like the rebellion of Sheba, uh, that you have got people in the kingdom who once again are going to say, let's, the Absalom caused some trouble. I think I'm going to try to cause some trouble. And you, you go through and you see war and difficulty, and, and it's going to continue to be tough. You know, the bottom of the page, I've just got this. Where there are people, there will continue to be challenges. Where there are people, there will continue to be challenges. One of these days, we will get a chance to dwell with perfect people. You know when that will be? In heaven. And uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, looking forward to having a lot of, you know, things that need working on in me to get cleaned up completely so that people don't have to be around me either. All of us are going to be... We're going to look, I don't know what it'll be like to look back on our life, but I have a feeling some of, there'll be some amount of, I can't believe I was like that. I can't believe, you know, I, I just, I can see how much God has brought to, to perfection and redemption and God has restored. You know, it, it's going to be amazing in you know, the depth of our own need for rescue there. But on earth, where there are people, there will continue to be challenges. It's just the way it is. But... At the same time, God has designed relationships to be a blessing that can't be replaced by your computer or your phone or your dog. Or, I mean, there's, God has designed relationships to be there with other people to do some really important things. I, I want you to flip over to 2 Samuel 22. And what you will see is you will see, um, more than likely, if your Bible does this, uh, you will see what appears to be poetic language or a psalm. 2 Samuel 22 is mostly uh, a quotation. Essentially, it lists all of Psalm 18 um, is quoted in Psalm 22. And so we kind of get the sense that David's life song as he's getting through uh, the, the end of his kingdom, as it sort of sums up everything, the psalm that is used to describe that is a psalm that he wrote in victory after going through so many trials. And that's Psalm 18, if you were to compare this uh, later on when you've got some time. I just want to look at four verses of that. Uh, Psalm 18, which is 2 Samuel 22, we're going to begin with verse 17. So I threw a lot of numbers at you, but 2 Samuel 17, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 22, I can't even keep it straight. 2 Samuel 22, beginning with verse 17. This is what David writes, just four verses here. Speaking about the Lord, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. One of the um, American presidents that I've, I've sort of spent a lot of this year being interested in is uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I think I've decided that for me, uh, Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt are the two most interesting presidents that I've got to learn about. You can have your own opinion in here, that's just mine. 
But I thought it was interesting that Teddy Roosevelt, you might, if you're a little dusty on the history, let me, let me tell you here or try to give it to you as best I can. Teddy Roosevelt at the time when he became president after William McKinley's assassination was the youngest president we'd ever had until John F. Kennedy was elected. And so right before he was elected as the vice president of the U.S., he decided he really wanted to get involved in a war. Now, most of us want to run from a war. Teddy Roosevelt couldn't wait to be involved in a war, and he even did all he could to get the Americans to step into what became known as the Spanish-American War. And he went off to Cuba and uh, put together a a group of um, soldiers, brigade, whatever you want to call it, on horseback that became known as the uh, Roosevelt's. Uh, was it Rough Riders? Is that what they became known as? And so, yeah. So they, they went trudging through the jungle. They were barely trained. I think one of the generals weighed over 300 pounds, and you should have seen the poor horse that was trying to carry him around. They, were, uh, they, they, had, a confederate, they had a confederate, former confederate soldier that was so old by that point, half the time he, he couldn't keep straight which were Spaniards and which were Yankees. He would use either term, and they knew to go after either one because he was talking about the enemy. And so this ragtag bunch of guys goes and ends up finding fame in a place called San Juan Hill. And uh, eventually America wins, uh, wins uh, the Spanish-American War. Happens really quickly. And I think it's, it comes to be known as the uh, tidy little war in American history. And so uh, without boring you with too many details, I would just say this, that when Teddy Roosevelt came back, he was the kind of guy that decided everybody needs to hear about the Spanish-American War from my perspective. And Teddy Roosevelt was a guy who had an ego. The urban legend is when he wrote his book on the Spanish-American War, the publishing house had to go buy more typeset of the letter I because he spoke about himself so much in his book. A friend of his, after reading the book, came to Teddy Roosevelt and he said, I enjoyed your book, but I think you should retitle it. Instead of the Spanish-American War, you should call it Alone in Cuba Uh, because Roosevelt uh, wrote about himself as if he was the only one taking things on. You know, I find it interesting that as, as we read the Psalms, you know, the Psalms are a wonderful window into the genuineness of the human heart and God meeting us where we are. And at times you see things that are a bit fleshly that come out. And I think one of the things we see with King David at times is that he almost writes as if he's the only human being in the world. He can write as if he's the one who everything else is centered around. You look here at these four verses that we read once again. And he's describing how the Lord has intervened for him. But he says, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong army, from those who hated me, for they were too many for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. You getting tired of me doing this yet? He brought me out into a broad place, rescued me because he delighted in me. David's not wrong. But I just wonder whether part of the Lord's work in his heart, in his life, was getting him to understand it wasn't just you. It wasn't just you. Joab had to come to him and speak to him that what was most important was not just how he felt in that moment, but there were those who had given their lives, there were those who had given their health, there's those who had given every effort that they could for his sake. I've got three points on the back for you about unselfish love tonight as we sort of wrap this up. And the first is this. Don't think that God's love to us is only extended vertically. 
Don't think that God's love to us is only extended vertically. If we're not careful, we will think of our whole spiritual life as me and God, God and me, he's doing this for me, I'm doing this for him. And what we will fail to see is how God wants to use those we've been put in community with. And if we're trying to just go solo all the time, we will miss what God has for us. It's a Wonderful Life ends with this uh, scene that many of you no doubt have seen before. I'll give you just a little window into part of it where George has finally realized that uh, never existing was not the way to go. And as he comes back home, he realizes his wife Mary has been urgently trying to raise the debt that his business owes. And all of a sudden, all these people that he's loved and cared for and impacted in their life begin to flood into his living room. I'll show you a brief moment of that here. Brother George, the richest man in town. Remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Um, now, for those of you, I think I told you the first week, if you're going to want to see the ending first, you got to do it ahead of time, but the movie's been out for 77 years, so don't get mad at me that I spoiled anything. There's still plenty that you uh, haven't seen in that movie. Great movie if you've never gotten a chance to see it, but I'm not here to plug the movie. As, uh, as, as George in this story gets a chance to see, No Man is a Failure Who Has Friends, you know, written to him in that book, but also what his brother said to my brother George, the richest man in town. Not only is no man a failure who has friends, no man is poor who has friends. And so for what he had to realize in in this character in the story, he had to come from a place of ambition to a place of darkness and despair and then to a place of restoration. And often the way that God restores and, and heals us is through the love of others. And if we're pulling back and saying, no, I don't, I don't want to be involved with other people, we will miss part of God's blessing. Don't think that God's love to us is only extended vertically. The second thing, don't fail to recognize those who love you. Don't fail to recognize those who love you. We live in a world where we say the nicest things about someone we know at their funeral when they're no longer alive to receive what we would say. Recognize the people who love you. Encourage them. Build them up. Don't fail to recognize those who love you. If you still got your Bible open, flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 23. As David's life song in Psalm 18 is done being quoted, and then we see some poetry from his last words, we then get a listing with a lot of uh, kludgy Hebrew names uh, about what are typically known as David's mighty men. I just read a, f- a few verses here for us. 2 Samuel 23, beginning with verse 13, this describing the three men who were closest to him. Three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. 
And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. And said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? And therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. You got any guys that you go through enemy lines to bring back water for? David had three guys who heard him say, Boy, I'd love to have a drink of water from my hometown well, but the enemy's in my hometown and I can't get to it. And the water there just reminds me of good times and gives me good thoughts and good feelings and, oh, that I could just have that water. He didn't say it thinking anybody was going to do it, but then all of a sudden these guys at risk to their life go for a cup of water or some sort of container of water and bring it back to David. Don't fail to recognize those who love you, not only in the sense of affirming them in their life, but don't fail to recognize those around you who care for you. Don't be so wounded by whatever you're facing that you can't see and zoom out enough to recognize God has given me this blessing in people who care for me and love me and take part with me in life. You know, I have to wonder, David got all that water brought to him and he poured it out. Maybe he felt like that was the right thing to do because they put themselves at risk. I can't enjoy water while they're putting themselves at risk. But I have to wonder if the correct thing to do would not have been to drink it. And here's why. When people want to love you, let them. When they want to bless you, let them. I I remember my grandfather saying, he's with the Lord now, but he used to, when he'd want to do something nice for different ones of us, you know, we go through the the thing that we normally do, right? Oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. No, 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 I'm okay, okay. No, you don't have to worry about that. And he would usually come to this phrase to say, now don't rob me of my blessing. If we're not careful, we're quick to rob people of their blessing when they want to love us. And we sort of say, no, 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 no. I think it would be right for us to not take advantage of people. I'm not saying that, but allow people to love you and to care for you if that's what they want to do. And it makes sense. And it doesn't, you know, put you in a, in a tough situation for uh, different things. Don't fail to recognize those who love you. The last thing is just sort of a point of practical application. And we close with this. You know, I think the church should be the place where the best friendships happen. The church should be the place where the best friendships happen. Something's wrong when we've got to go outside of the people of God to get authentic friendships. Something's wrong if we have to leave the community of people or if we have somebody who we know needs to come to faith and, or they're just on a journey in a different place than most people. And we say, well, you know what? If you, really, if you really want to find the right place to be loved just as you are or just where you're at in your journey, maybe you should try down here. But I don't, I don't know if with us is the best thing. Well, we've gotten something wrong whenever we start to think that way. Church should be the place where the best friendships happen. And what we're tempted to do is to keep people at arm's length. Some of us may not be aware that, as I understand it historically, the reason that people started dressing up for church many years ago had to do with how separate people were on their farms from the rest of their community. 
And so they only saw the rest of the community one day a week. And so if there was one day a week where you were going to get your Saturday bath the night before, wash up, put your good overalls on and your collared shirt that doesn't have a bunch of holes in it and maybe wear a tie or whatever it is, whatever your nicest clothes are, you're going to put them on that one day because everybody in the community is going to shape how they feel about you that one day when they see you. Historically, Jesus and the disciples, from the best we could tell, didn't dress up to come together, but we've sort of adapted that in our own communities. Not necessarily a wrong thing, but that's where it came from from was trying to sort of keep up with the Joneses if you will around one another but if we're not careful what that develops into is that church becomes the place where we try to be unauthentic and we've missed the boat when we do that church should be the place where we get to feel the reverence not only for the Lord but also an authentic friendship that allows us to be genuinely compassionate and loving towards one another in a way that builds the greatest relationships in our lives outside of our families. And for some of us, maybe even on top of different situations you might face in your own family. So don't come to Sunday, dress bad, and say, well, Jonathan told me to do it. I didn't tell you to do it. I'm just saying, don't come to, don't come to church in order to keep people at arm's length. But find the way that the Lord has designed friendships um, to draw us closer not only to Christ, but to have the sort of building up that we need. I, I close with this tonight. In World War I, there were two friends that were inseparable from one another. They'd enlisted together, they'd trained together, they were shipped overseas together, they fought side by side in the trenches. And during an attack, one of the men was critically wounded in a field and filled with barbed wire obstacles. He was unable to crawl back to his foxhole. The entire area was under a withering enemy crossfire, and it was suicidal to try to reach him, and yet his friend decided to try. Before he could get out of his own trench, his sergeant yanked him back inside and ordered him not to go. It's too late. He said, you can't do him any good. If you go out there, you're going to get yourself killed. And a few minutes later, the officer turned his back, and instantly the man was gone after his friend. A few minutes later, he, stepped, he staggered back, terribly wounded with his friend who was now dead in his arms, and the sergeant was both angry and deeply moved. That was a waste, he blurted out. He's dead and you might be dying, it wasn't worth it. With almost a failing breath, the man replied, yes it was, sergeant. When I got to him, the only thing he says was, I knew you'd come, Jim. You have any friends tonight that when they're facing something difficult, and they say, I, I knew you'd come. You want to be that kind of relationship, that kind of believer, that kind of brother and sister and friend. You know, may we strive to do so. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that when our stories go from ambition to darkness and despair, that your plan is restoration. And I thank you, Lord, that you don't simply just use the power of your word. You don't simply just use our circumstances. But even the movement of the Holy Spirit is not simply vertical, but you involve others to be an encouragement and a blessing to our hearts and lives. So, Lord, would you help us to be the kind of friends that others know will come? Will you help us? to have genuine relationships with one another? Would you help us to love each other well? To guard each other well? And Lord, 
when there's times that we want to be rich in the wrong things, would you show us that no one is a failure who knows Jesus and no one's a failure who has friends and no one is truly poor when there are those who love them? And so, Father, however you'd use your word, the story of King David or, or otherwise in our hearts and lives, Lord, we just thank you that your word never returns void. And we thank you for the chance to be here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.